in a way that's comfortable and at ease and uh, listen not so much to remember um, no quiz at the end but rather just to sense if what you hear reminds you of something you know to be true in your own deep experience um, and that's really the point your experience your wisdom and your understanding so I'd like to talk tonight about the seat of awakening last week for a few of you that were here last Monday I talked about returning from Indonesia from being in Bali and uh, Java going to Borobudur which is the largest Buddhist temple in the world in the middle of Java and spending time as I have over many years in the Balinese culture Um, and part of what's so mysterious is to get on a plane many of you have this experience and fly halfway around the world you know and and see when you get up pretty high almost the edge of the curvature of the earth and this whole world goes by that took people whether they walked initially out of Africa and across the steppes of Asia in the land bridge here or even by by steam or something like that years or at least weeks and months to travel and there it is and you know 15 20 hours and you've you've gone around most of the world and it's so mysterious that we can do that in this globe and magical um, and you're in one part of the world and it appears and there's all these things and then you're in another part of the world and other things appear and vanish um, while I was in Bali uh, I talked about this a little bit last week one of the many moving rituals and ceremonies that I went to and the Balinese culture is both filled with beautiful ceremonies and offerings and rituals and art um, woven into the fabric of people's lives was a funeral that I attended I also went to a trance dance in a fire walking ritual where these people were in trance and walking on hot coals and things like that that was a mistake actually because I went out and thought I could do it too Um, and the main mistake I did was um, not asking them how to do it in advance I thought well they're doing it I should be able to do it right but apparently there there's a few things you need to know (laughs) that's why one meditates maybe to do a little training in advance but in this case I hadn't done the fire walking training so I got I was dancing around going ow 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 and so that was my mantra with blisters and burns Um, but the villagers thought it was really quite amusing um, to see this American guy dancing around doing his mantra while the rest of them were but anyway I went to we were taken by this Balinese friend who married a Balinese prince years ago and is very much woven into the Balinese culture now and their children and and um, family to a um, Balinese cremation funeral that I talked about um, last week and there are several very moving things about it and it was an older woman who died and people had grieved um, when she died um, but they knew she was dying it wasn't a big surprise so there was some tears and some honoring Um, but after a few days they prepared her for the cremation um, they washed her body in this very beautiful way um, uh, and then there were a couple hundred people there and everybody who was there came by and left flowers and prayers and woven offerings on her body they tucked it into you know, the clothes she was wearing or around her body her body was laid out on a white piece of linen um, 
And by the time all the neighbors and villagers and people around had gone by, she was covered with people's prayers. And then they wrapped her up and held her, the village elders held her up um, in two lines, held her body. Um, and as they held her body up, her children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, all the people who were her descendants in some way or other, all bowed and walked underneath her body while it was being held up, as if to honor that, she, that they were descended from her and they were going to carry her spirit. Um, and I asked one of the Balinese friends who was there, why are people, you know, it was moving and beautiful, but people didn't seem to be sad. In fact, there was music and dancing and, 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 and there was also a lot of celebration. And she looked at me and said, well, do you think there's only one life? She's going to be back soon. I mean, what's the fuss? You know? It was really kind of extraordinary. And it reminded me of being in Burma a couple of years ago doing another trip, um, working with the Foundation for the People of Burma, uh, having uh, raised uh, quite a lot of money after the cyclone and um, bringing enough money to build several clinics and uh, about a dozen schools to Burma with this group of people that raised 300-some thousand dollars. Um, And we went to one relatively remote village where we'd been working together with some doctors um, and medical people who who were living up in the mountains there, working with the mountain people, and talked with the midwife there. Um, And it was sort of a moderate-sized village up in the mountains. And it was an old grandmother um, who was the midwife. She was training a younger midwife and... um, in the conversation, said, well, how many babies have you received coming into this world? And she looked around and there was, you know, there was, I don't know, 50 or 100 or more people. A lot of village was there for this celebration. She said, oh, all of these, you know. And there was such a sense of community. She smiled. This is, these are all the babies that I, of course. Um, we're woven together in something so mysterious in this incarnation um, death and birth. Um, there's, a, there's a work of art and a ritual place and a monument in Colorado called the Salt Monument. And the Salt Monument is the vision of this one woman artist and ritualist. And what she's done is she created a special room and a special place. And in it she built a giant cube shaped the, uh, shaped the, the angles of a salt crystal made out of lucite plastic um, that rotates once every 24 hours. It's got a, got a little motor that turns it around. And into it, she has poured approximately 7 billion crystals of salt, one for each person alive on the earth today. And each um, morning, when it has made half a turn, um, she ritually climbs to the top of this salt crystal and pours in the top of it a little vase of um, salt that is the uh, equivalent of the 200,000 people that were born that day to add to it. And then each evening before the sun goes down, she goes to the bottom of the crystal and draws out um, a slightly smaller container that has 150,000 crystals of salt for all the people who've died that day. 
she makes a prayer for them, and then she puts it into a mandala, a basin of water that's been made like a lotus, so that the salt dissolves back in the water, and then the water is taken back to a river to go back to the earth. Um, and that is her prayer. She does prayers every day for the, you know, all those that are born and all those that die. And then she has on the side little little vases like. Here is um, your family and friends and community, one little thimble of salt, all those people. Here's all the people you'll meet in, in your lifetime, ordinarily. You know, Here's the people in some particular country or other. And then again, here is the human beings on this globe. So, oh, and also, um, she has on the side uh, salt crystals in one other special place she keeps them a hundred million of them, which represent the hundred million hundred million people um, who are awaiting birth at this moment, held and floating in the waters of life in their mother's body right now. A hundred million people all floating in there saying, my turn soon. <laughs> and it's pretty wild to incarnate, isn't it? You know? So we come to sit in meditation, and yes, it helps to quiet the mind, reduce stress, open the heart, but there's something deeper about it. We sit as a Buddha, or as the Bodhisattva of compassion, and as we get quiet, as the mind quiets and we begin to open, we also sit in the presence of the mystery, the mystery of life, the mystery of incarnation. I mean, I don't know how you got in there. but it's pretty wild to have a body like this, um, isn't it? I mean, you know, remember when you were a little kid? That's not your body anymore. It's completely changed. It does all this weird stuff. And it gets older. That's pretty wild. Um, and so you sit in meditation and you take your seat as the Buddha, halfway between heaven and earth, to open yourself to this mystery. To open yourself to see with not just the ordinary eyes of what your to-do list is and the things that you have to you know, put in the bank account or answer the letters or emails or things like that, but to step back and say, wow, here we are alive on this particular planet that you can travel around in this way, having been born for a time in this culture and in this body. And what is that? Who are we? Now, when the... Buddha tried to awaken to this great mystery and find liberation, freedom, enlightenment, different languages for it. As the myth or the story goes, um, he took his seat under the Bodhi tree, the tree of enlightenment, after all his preparation. And as he sat there, he was attacked by the armies of Mara. And Mara is the Indian mythological name for all the forces of destruction and delusion and confusion and so forth. And he was attacked by, attacked by the temptations of Mara and all the possible temptations trying to move him off his seat. Wouldn't you like this, you know? It wasn't a Maserati, but it was the coolest chariot that they had in those days. And it was <laughs> dancing girls and it was great palaces. And he sat unmoved. And Mara said, well, all right. I'll try something more. And he brought all his armies to shoot arrows and spears and flaming arrows. And the Buddha raised his hand and touched every 
one of the weapons that came to him with compassion and the arrows and spears turned into flower petals and dropped around his feet. And he sat there responding to the aggression of the world with compassion. Mara said, all right, aggression didn't work, temptation didn't work, how about doubt? You know that one, right? And so Mara appeared and said, by what right do you think you can sit here and become enlightened? Who do you think you are? I mean, it's one thing to sit and, you know, be the warrior prince or the sage and, you know, not be moved by temptation or aggression. But who do you think? Do you think you're special? I mean, isn't that inflation? And he just started to rag on the Buddha about what he thought he was doing. And by what right do you take this seat? And at that point, if you look at a lot of the statues or images of the Buddha, including the one behind me, which is not so easy for most of you to see, um, uh, the right hand of the Buddha uh, is down, touching the earth with his fingertips. And the story is that he touched the earth and asked the earth itself to be his witness. And as the story goes, the goddess of the earth arose and um, said, I have seen this young man over countless lifetimes practice patience and dedication and compassion. I have bore witness to his integrity and to his beautiful spirit. And he has a right to sit on the surah and he has a right to awaken. And the Buddha said, the earth is my witness. And with that, the goddess of the earth washed the armies of Mara away. And what the story really tells in a mythological or symbolic way is that you too are a child of this earth. Your body is made of the minerals of the earth. You know, the blood and the the fluids in your body are like seawater. They've got salt in them and, you know, they're pretty much the saline constitution similar to sea seawater. If you have a baby floating in there, they're floating in their own little ocean of amniotic seawater and and fluid. Um, You are a child of this earth and you have a right to be here or you wouldn't be here. You are a child of the earth and your life can be honored as the Buddha's life was without blame, without shame, There's a certain dignity to your humanity, to every person's humanity, which is called your Buddha nature. And this is your capacity to awaken. No matter what terrible things you may have done or what terrible things you've gone through, as the stories of the Buddha have it, he went through all kinds of terrible things, both things that were difficult that happened to him and mistakes that he made. But with all of those things, you have the capacity to both liberate your heart and to awaken the great heart of compassion within you. It is there, it is your birthright, it is your dignity, and no one can take it from you. So Viktor Frankl wrote at one point, he said, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts comforting others and giving away their last piece of bread They may have been few in number, but their very existence proves the last and final 
freedom for a human being, the freedom to choose your spirit in any given circumstance. And this is really that awakening that the Buddha found that it doesn't matter the circumstances of your life, and they can be very difficult at times, but no one can imprison your heart. Nelson Mandela found that in 27 years in Robben Island prison, walking out with such magnanimity and graciousness and compassion. Things can happen to your body, but your heart is free. So a story for you. I got a book some years ago um, about the Vietnam, Vietnam Veterans Memorial, that stone black wall with the 58,000 names on it that many of you have probably seen in Washington. It's so moving. Um, and it was a picture book of gifts and prayers that were left at the wall because the wall has become a kind of temple for people who've lost family members who go and do rubbings of their names, for people who lost uh, fellow soldiers who were in combat, for people and some that were touched by that war. And one of the most moving images was a copy of a picture of a Vietnamese soldier in his green uniform with his, looked like his daughter in the picture, and this handwritten letter. Dear Sir, for 22 years I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18, 18 years old that day. Think about our soldiers. I was only 18 years old that day when we faced one another on that trail in Chu Lai. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me so long, holding your AK-47, and yet you did not fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was just reacting the way I was trained. So many times over the years I've stared at your picture and your daughter's, I suspect, and each time my heart and guts would burn with the pain of guilt, for I have two daughters now myself. And I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland. And above all else, I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that is why you did not shoot and why I am here today. And yet, it is time for me to continue the life process I've been given. I must ask your help to release my pain and guilt. Please forgive me, sir. Please forgive me. So already that's a kind of extraordinary thing to see and to be touched by. But in nine, excuse me, in 2009, Richard Luttrell, um, who left that note and picture, um, made an amazing journey, and it was recorded in a newspaper article um, through a fellow vet. Um, the picture somehow circulated around, um, and uh, he got some encouragement. And he decided to go to Vietnam and find the daughter of this man that he had shot and return the photograph to her. So he went there and went to the archives in Hanoi and found out who the soldier was and found her and her brother and got an interpreter 
went to their village and introduced himself to them and said, tell her this is the photo that I took from her father's wallet the day I shot and killed him, and now I'm returning it to her. And with his voice breaking, he asked her forgiveness. And the young woman burst into tears and fell into Richard's arm, sobbing. And later her brother explained that he and his sister believed that their father's spirit lived on in Richard, and that on that day their father's spirit had come back to them. So the real question in meditation, yes, it's quieting ourselves, yes, it's being present for our life, but more deeply, it's the question of what matters to us in this mystery, in this incarnation? And it's as if this has happened. It's as if some great king or queen has sent you on an errand to a foreign land called America. Right, And there's some really important thing that you have to do, this great errand for the king or queen. And it's fine that you do other things. You get an education, you have a job, you get married, you have children or grandchildren or not, you do your creative things. All of those are fine. You go to great marketplaces and listen to rock concerts and classical music and do the things of this land. But if you forget your real errand, then all those, and all those things take you over, then you've lost the point of the journey. Rollo May writes, it's an ironic habit that human beings have. We run faster when we've lost our way. <laughs> and we can look at our modern life, you know, um, Consumerism, speed, complexity. How many people would like your life to be simpler than it is? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) Um, And and one of my teachers, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, in the Forest Monastery of Thailand, when he was describing the modern world, he said, you know how it looks from the point of view of a forest meditation master. The description for the modern world is lost in thought. We're not even where we are. You know, and there's an article that I read recently from a researcher at Harvard University, Daniel Gilbert, in which he was studying the American wandering mind. And not only do people's minds wander a lot and all kinds of, you know where it goes, everywhere, right? Chicago, and it redoes some bar mitzvah or, you know, church thing, whatever that happened 30 years ago, or some family gathering or some imagination. It just goes anywhere. It has no pride, Right. But he found out that, um, in through a whole series of tests and so forth, that um, people were happiest when they were where they were. And they were much more unhappy when they were multitasking, distracted, not actually living the life where they are. But we live in a culture, the addicted society, some people have called it, where we lose touch with ourselves and maybe even more importantly we lose touch with our heart with the sense of mystery with the graciousness and wisdom that we carry because we're so busy with all that other stuff virginia wolf wrote one point she said if people are highly successful in their professions it's even worse they lose their senses sight goes they have no time to look at beautiful pictures 
Sound goes, they have no time to listen to music. Speech goes, they have no time for leisurely and deep conversation. They lose their sense of proportion. As their success builds, their humanity disappears. I got a letter, or I saw a letter, that was written by a Tibetan Lama, Minja Rinpoche, who wrote a New York Times best-selling book on joy, and it was characterized as the he was characterized as the happiest man alive because he went to one of Cliff's friends, Rich and my friends, Richie Davidson's lab, and you know did all these neuroscience tests, and you know he came way high up on the happiness scale, <laughs> and he's just a very bubbly, cheerful, beautiful, wonderful young young man, thirty years old or something. But anyway, he went. He decided he would go on a long retreat. He's been teaching for a while, and so he went to Bodh Gaya, to the seat of these great Tibetan and Theravada temples and so forth in in India. Um, began a long retreat, and then in the middle of the night, he disappeared, taking only his robes, his clothes, and he left a letter. And he said, "Life is as fragile as a bubble." And so I'm now leaving you to wander the mountains alone with no fixed abode like the great masters of the past with as much conviction and dedication as I can muster. Um, I will try to be faithful to their example, although I'm only a mere reflection and an imitation of their example, perhaps there is something for me to learn. For a number of years, my training will consist of leaving behind all connections, so please do not be upset my by my decision, but offer your prayers for my journey. Thank you, Minja Rinpoche. Goodbye. You know that's a kind of amazing thing to do—just walk off into the Himalayas. And of course, there is a there is a Tibetan tradition of doing that of Milarepa and various yogis and sages. Um, it 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 troubled his mother <laughs> and family members, but you know they are all, they're all praying for him. Um, and he had to follow, this is the errand that the king sent him on. He had to find something. I don't know what he was drawn to follow, something really important. Now the question is, do you have to go to the Himalayas to do that? And I don't believe that you do. The Buddha tried through his own ascetic practice in the story of his life anyway, to fast and to beds of nails and all the great ascetic practices of India to defeat the energies and impulses of life in him and triumph over them, but fighting against himself he found didn't work. And finally he took his seat in the middle of all things and stopped fighting with the way life was and the way that he was and said, instead of struggling against the world and the way that it is, let me see it clearly. Let me open to it and see the truth of the way things are, instead of saying, all right, this is bad and that's good and I need to fight and get rid of this and have that happen. Instead of that, let me take a seat in the midst of this mystery of incarnation and open my heart and my mind and see what it is to be human in the deepest way. And so he took his seat of awakening and he didn't have to go, and he was in India at that time, but it, it's not that he had to go up and sit in a cave in the Himalayas and do these wild practices that Minja Rinpoche may do or may not. But he said, actually, what I have to do is to stop. I have to stop fighting myself, stop fighting life, 
and instead sit, quiet myself, and see as deeply as I can what is true about this life. And as he did, he began to see some of the great insights that he's passed on as a teacher and passed down for generations, one of which is that life contains suffering. And that no matter whether you sit or run or stand or walk or whatever you try to do to run away from it, it's woven into the fabric of life. Anybody not have it? Just checking here. See if you can have your money back. right? But also that suffering, which is different than pain, life also contains pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, pleasure and pain, they're always changing. This is the the fabric of existence. But that that natural praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, turns into suffering when we fight it, when we resist it, when we cling to things. We make enormous suffering for ourselves and others. The more tightly we cling, the more frightened we are, the more we grasp, the more aggression we have because we, we don't want experience to be a certain way. That becomes the roots of greed, the roots of hatred, the roots of war, and racism, and prejudice, and all the things that create enormous suffering in the world. And yet, the Buddha also saw it was not necessary. That it's possible to stop, to step out of being at war with the way things are. To come into a centeredness and a spaciousness, or a gracious heart, in the midst of this wild thing we call human incarnation. And it's not that it's easy or beautiful. Oscar Wilde used the phrase, the tainted glory of humanity. It's both glorious and it's tainted. And that's true wherever we look. And I used to think when I was first teaching Buddhist practice that we needed to get rid of and end greed and addiction and compulsion and aggression and laziness and all those energies that cause suffering... But as I paid more attention, underneath all of those, what I sense is fear. Sometimes it's described as the small or limited sense of self. Sometimes it's described as the body of fear. But we're frightened. We're frightened to let go, and yet we live in this changing stream of life. We're frightened to touch all the things of life, the joys and the sorrows. In a way, we're frightened to be here and experience our life fully, the river of experience and of emptiness, because it appears out of nowhere and it vanishes. What happened to yesterday or last year? Remember Y2K? (laughs) Remember the 20th century? Most of you do. And it's gone. It's back with the pyramids, you know, and Kublai Khan and all that. It's just disappeared. But so is yesterday. And it appears and it dances and it goes away. We seek, as a friend of mine, this very wonderful woman who um, lived for a time in a monastery in Burma, Jocelyn King. She said, we, we seek security on the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness. Because things are always changing and we can try and hold on. Then you get rope burn, you know, because you're holding on so much. Or you can relax and say, all right, we are... We are change. We are life-changing itself. And as we do, 
the heart softens, the mind gets more spacious and clear, and we can sense in ourself the same tiredness of people who've been on the road a long time. It's not just our tiredness, it's the tiredness of humanity. And when we're hungry, we can sense the hunger of so many people who have much less than we do. Or when we feel lonely or lost, it's not just our loneliness, but it's really the loneliness of being human, isolation and worry. And yet it's possible to open to this which makes our mysterious life individual and collective with dignity, graciousness, a kind of fearlessness. And the fearlessness doesn't mean you don't have fear. It's a really interesting thing. I remember going to see one of my teachers in India, this man named Nisargadat Maharaj. And I'd been on a long retreat uh, in the mountains of Sri Lanka for a couple of months and doing this wonderful practice of making my mind as vast as the space of the galaxy with each breath and then with the other part of the breath coming to just rest at one point in my heart. And I did this for a couple of months with every breath. And by the time I went back to see him, I'd been sitting with him and practicing and I went away for a couple of months. By the time I went back, I was so stoned. I was just like gone, you know. And I came in to see him and he said, you're back. And I said, I'm not back. There's no coming and going. There's just sights appearing. There's this vast space and there's colors and it looked like I was in India and looked like I was in Sri Lanka, but actually there's just awareness and things appear and they disappear and it's all completely empty. And he sat forward on his seat and kind of stared at me. You know, what are you, who, what are you telling me? What do you think? And he, he, got, he really got animated and sort of testing me, like, was I making up some story or something like that? But I was just gone. It was, I was really happy and free. And you can ask whatever you like, but there's nobody here and it's all just this great dance of emptiness. <laughs> So I was <clears throat> sitting there and, and um, people were watching. It was a beautiful dialogue. And after about 10 minutes or so, he seemed pretty satisfied. And then he peered at me and he said, so, so no more fear ever, right? And the minute he said that, this little thought came, well, wait, you know, I could actually be afraid of something or other. <laughs> and that whole, you know, well, how could I say forever? Everything changes. Maybe I will be afraid, whatever. And he saw it, he saw it in my eyes, and he said, ah, he said, go sit in the back of the room and work on that. That's, you know, that's where you, that's where the self was born. Now, I, later on, I, I know how I would have answered him. I mean, there I was sort of, no more fear ever, and ding, 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 you know, I lost my cool in a certain way. Um, but actually, it was like a koan from a Zen master. Now I know how I would have answered him. And maybe I'll tell you later in the evening. I'll let you figure out what you would have said. So here's a passage from the Zen teacher, Karl Fried von Durkheim. He writes, The person who, being really on the way, falls upon hard times in the world will not, as a consequence, turn to that friend who offers them refuge and comfort and encourages their old self to survive. Rather, they will seek out someone who will faithfully and inexorably help them to risk themselves so that they may endure the difficulty and pass courageously through it. Only to the extent that a person exposes themselves over and over again to annihilation can that which is indestructible be found within them. In this daring lies dignity and the spirit of true 
awakening. And so through the very difficulties and the challenges or the fears that Nisargadot pointed to, to be fearless doesn't mean that fear isn't there, but that there is a dignity and a freedom and a willingness to say yes to this life. And that is possible for you, and it changes everything. It changes your life and it changes the people around you. And so we meditate, yes, to quiet ourselves, to let go of tension and stress, we stress, but for something deeper. You stop and pay attention, and first there's your life breath. It's always breathing, and we forget about it. Statistically, do you know the likelihood that one deep breath that you take contains a molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath? There's a lot of molecules in a liter or a half liter of, uh, of air. Avogadro's number, I guess, I don't know, it's like 10 to the 20th or something incredible. 99% of the time when you take a deep breath, you also have one molecule from Julius Caesar's dying breath. We are that interconnected. So when you sit and feel your breath, you're not just breathing your breath. You're actually recycling breath. You are, you're breathing in what somebody else breathed out and what the trees, the bay trees and the laurels and the, and the oaks and the trees of the Amazon and the kelp in the ocean. And you are part of this living field of life and your breath brings you back to feel life forth itself. And so you use the breath, you ride the breath, not to become a good breather, but to open to the mystery of life breathing through you. Nellie Sachs, let me see. Nellie Sachs won the Nobel Prize for Poetry in the 1960s. Someone will take the ball from the hands that play the game of terror. Stars have their own law of fire, and their fertility is the light, and reapers and harvesters are not native here. Far off stand their granaries. Straw, too, has a momentary power of illumination, painting our loneliness. Someone will come and sow the green of the spring bud on their prayer shawl and set the child's silken curl as a sign on the brow of the century. Here, amen, must be said, this crowning of words which moves into hiding, and peace, you great eyelid, Closing on all unrest, your heavenly wreath of lashes brings you the most gentle of all births. And she won her Nobel Prize. She wrote poetry coming out of the Holocaust. Um, But it wasn't just the poetry that was the terrors of the Holocaust, but it was the sweetness of rebirth that comes to us no matter what we have lived through no matter what it is. The Buddha said, you can put a spoon of salt in a small cup and the water will taste very salty. Or you can put that spoon of salt into a lake and the water will still be pure and clear. Make your mind, your perspective, your awareness vast like the sky and see the dance of life into which you have been born with a compassionate heart with the sense of renewal that's possible for you. 
And as you sit quietly, then the body starts to open. It wants to open. If you need to, as Mary Oliver says, let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And you sit and the pains and tensions that you carry start to release and open. And I was in Bali visiting these shamans and Balian and Dukun, and they would sing to you. They sing you back to your body. They sing you into the mystery. And your mind starts to open. And first it just tells a million stories because it's a storytelling machine, you know, and it's stuck on overdrive, right? (laughs) It's like being in a Motel 6 late at night and you can't turn the TV off and it's on the shopping channel or something. (laughs) And it just keeps going on and on. And all you have to do is sit for five minutes and you just see the river of thoughts, right? Um, And it tells such stories. Here's a Chinese poet, Xin Qi. In my young days, I never tasted sorrow. I wanted to become a famous poet. I wanted to get ahead, so I pretended to be sad. How's that? Remember that? Now now I am old and have known the depths of sorrow, and so I'm content to loaf and enjoy the clear autumn evening. And we have, you know, we want what we don't have. Oh, I want to be deep, you know, when you're young. It'll, don't worry about it. It'll get to you, right? <laughs> but the mind has no pride. And it tells all these stories. And instead you sit, and here's the body opening, and the mind starts opening. You see all its stories, who we are, what we'll do, what we should do, what we didn't do, what the world should be like. And finally you say, okay, this is the way things are. You see the suchness of the world. The world is like this. And you rest in the space of awareness that says this is the way it is, this mystery of incarnation. And your emotions open, the sadness and joy and anxiety and longing and love and tenderness and hatred, because it's not in somebody else. You know, the source of racism and war and greed and so forth, it's not in the rest of the world. It's part of us too. As W.H. Auden said, you love your crooked neighbor with your own crooked heart. That's the way it works. And part of the dance in the villages in Bali that's done every six months or so, they'll take the they'll take Rangda, who represents the um, demons and destructive bad energies, and then they'll take this barang that's the kind of Um, dragon of purification and good and beneficent energy and so forth. And they do this whole huge trance dance in the village and act out good and evil and dangerous and benevolent. Um, And eventually, people go into trance and they do all these wild things, and eventually they go back to their temples when the whole day of this dance, the the barang eventually chases Rangda back into her temple. And she goes back in for six more months. And the village goes, ah, okay, we're it's sort of ritually enacting what's in us. But I was talking to my Balinese friends, and they said it's not like <coughs> like that side, the temple where Rangda and the Shiva temple and so forth, where that is, it's, all, it's not all bad. We see them as woven together, that they have to come together, day and night and praise and blame and sweet and sour and pleasure and pain. You can't have one without the other. It's how duality works. If you don't want that, you're on the wrong planet. Mm 
It just works that way. So anger is destructive, but it also has clarity, doesn't it? The Greeks call it the noble emotion. And desire can be addiction, but it also creates life. It's creativity, it's awakening, it's moving us. And, and confusion can be terrible, but it also recognizes the truth that we don't understand it all, actually, do we? And that um, don't know mind, the Zen teacher calls it, that actually it's a greater mystery than we can figure out, and we're not in control of it. And you don't know what will happen when you go out that door tonight, actually. You have a good guess, some good odds, but you actually don't know. You don't. Nobody does. And grief, it's terrible loss, but it also shows love. There wouldn't be grief without love. So these are woven together in this amazing way. And our practice is to take our seat and to just say, ah, this too, this too, and bow to it. To take the one seat halfway between heaven and earth and meet this life with a spacious and kind heart. And it doesn't mean you don't repair the world. It doesn't mean you don't stand up for justice when there's injustice, that you don't feed the hungry. But there are different ways to do it. There are people out there who are doing it who are adding to the aggression and anger and blame and all you have to do is turn on the TV and you can see them in every stripe. And there are those who are really feeding the hungry because out of love. out of It's not, oh, I'm going to be a good person or those people are bad because they're keeping the food and these people don't have it. But there is food, there's hungry mouths, it's us, it's family. What can I do? How do I do this? And it turns out that as you take this seat and let yourself feel connected with something greater than the limited, small sense of yourself, a whole new way of being opens in you. A kind of dignity and graciousness and fearlessness that doesn't mean you're not afraid, but just is true to your errand, true to your soul's deepest understanding of what really matters to you. And you've sat with your physical pain or the conflicts that come. You've done some forgiveness work. You've seen your personal history because anybody who sits and meditates gets, you know, reruns. It happens. I call it the Freudian layer, right? You get to see your family again. (laughs) Yet again, right? But there comes also this profound healing and renewal that you begin to trust. Because meditation is, in a way, a flowering. It's like composting and digging and making the soil fruitful. And it's not so much creating something. It's the flowering of goodness that comes. And I remember when I was in the Cambodian refugee camps years ago, spread out in these great dry plain on the border, Thai border of Cambodia in the hot season, and it was... 110 degrees and hardly any water, this big pit well that a bulldozer dug at the end and 50 or 100,000 people in these tiny little bamboo huts that were about 7 feet long and 5 feet wide, made of bamboo with a bamboo roof, thatch roof, and a little path to the doorway and maybe one square yard of land next to that path before the next hut. And in almost every one of those little square yards, people had planted a garden. 
they'd been there a month or two months or three months and the UNHCR had offered seeds. And they would go and they would stand with a bamboo pole and a, well, uh, and a, and a, a bucket on each end for an hour or two in this blazing sun and walk down in a long line and dip their buckets with water and bring it back and water a little squash plant and a little bean plant, pea plant, whatever they planted. And it would start to creep up over the doorway and they're a little hot. And there are people who'd lost everything, their villages, their temples were burned, their, half their family were killed. And you could feel the tremendous sorrow. And yet, there is some resilience in us as human beings, some spirit, some life that is what you are, that wants to renew itself, that is completely trustworthy and wants to be reborn. And just it was as it was in those Cambodians, that healing, renewal takes place when we water the heart, when we pay attention. It's attention and compassion that water our own heart. So as we take the seat in meditation, breath, body, thoughts, relation through all things, and let ourselves be centered, center ourselves, there grows in us a faith in our capacity to open, that we absolutely can trust. It knows how to open. The body wants to unwind and heal and release. It just does. The heart wants to weep and gnash and grieve and be angry and all those things. It wants to release the past in some way. So like that story of the soldier in Vietnam, so that it can make even the sorrows that we have into something that has grace for us. In Tibet, you know, they pray for difficulties in the monasteries. Grant that I might have suffering and difficulty. Imagine that in your meditation so that real patience and real love and real compassion grow in me. But it doesn't happen quickly, you know. It, uh, it knows how to open. I like to read this story. A man wrote to the IRS, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes last year. <laughs> Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. (laughs) You know, so it's not like an idealistic thing. At first it's like, oh shit, you know. Oh dear, look at this. And we get contracted and frightened and we get lost. But there is something in us a kind of fundamental dignity of Nelson Mandela and Aung San Suu Kyi that we carry, that get touched, gets touched and remembered when we quiet ourselves and wants to awaken. And so we get to have more and more faith in our capacity to open, to to be with the mystery of the 10,000 joys and sorrows of human incarnation as the Buddha, as the Bodhisattva of compassion rather than as somebody who's lost in the small sense of self. And we discover that what we long for is already here. Where do you think you'll find love if you don't find it in yourself? And we want love so much. You know, where do you think you'll find freedom? In the Himalayas, in some great temple? There's only one place you'll find that freedom. In the er, near the beginning of his career, Harry Houdini, the great 
magician traveled around Europe visiting small towns where he would challenge local jailers to bind him in a straitjacket and lock him in a cell. And again and again he delighted the crowds with quick escapes from seemingly impossible restraints. But in one small Irish village he ran into trouble in front of the avid group of reporters and townspeople. He easily broke free from his straitjacket Yet, despite his repeated efforts to solve the puzzle of the lock, he failed to open the cell door. He had to admit defeat and ask the jailer to release him. After everyone left, Houdini asked the jailer, What kind of new lock did you put on your cell? Oh, said the jailer, It's actually quite an ordinary lock. I figured you'd have no difficulty opening it, so I never bothered locking it at all. (laughs) Assuming he was trapped, Houdini's very efforts to free himself had locked him in. And you begin to sense that what we're looking for is who we are. We're the author of our life. The mind, said the Buddha, is the forerunner of all things. And whether we're looking for love or being or wholeness or interconnection, where else could it be? Where else could you find it? And to take your seat is allow is to allow this connectedness and nobility and radiance to begin again to shine from you. To allow it no matter what. As Guillaume Apollinaire says, now and then it's good to pause in your pursuit of happiness and just be happy. <laughs> happy for no reason. Happy because you have a breath, because you're alive, because the world presents itself with its tragedies and with its beauties. This is what you get as a human being. And you can move through it with dignity and graciousness and and understanding. It's your gift. You are not the body of fear. You are not the small sense of self. When you look in the mirror, you notice that you've aged, right? Yes. But there's that weird experience I like to talk about because you don't necessarily feel older. But, you know, it's losing its fur and it's wrinkling and sagging and doing all the things it does, right? That's because it's only the body that's aged. And in that simple looking in the mirror and seeing, mm, it's changing or it's drooping or whatever it's doing, right? Bulging, it does all these weird things. Um, it does, doesn't it? sad, but it's true. (laughs) But in looking at it, there's some part that says, wow, look at that, look at what's happening, and you know that that's not who you are. You know that, oh yeah, look at what's happening to it. Because who you are is the awareness that sees all of this. And when you take your seat, when you listen to these words, you are emptiness and awareness, you are emptiness and fullness. You are everything. And you take your seat, as my teacher Ajahn Chah said, you become like a still forest pool. And the whole world, the forest and the animals and everything, is reflected in the, in the waters of your awareness. If you try not to be aware, you can't do it. All right, stop listening, hearing, thinking, feeling, sensing. Just turn off awareness. Go ahead, try. Can't do it, can you? Because awareness is who you are. Awareness, the space of presence, the witnessing to all things is your nature. 
And as you take your seat, you rest in the space of awareness and in the great heart of compassion because you are nothing and you are everything. And this is true. And yes, you have this small identity and you have to remember your zip code and your social security number and you know pay your bills and things like that. And that's kind of part of the mystery and the trouble and the beauty of incarnation. But you know that that's not. I mean, you're not your zip code and God knows you're not your social security number. It's not worth so much anymore anyway. You're not the limited self that we are taught in this culture that we are. Oh, nobly born, says the Buddha, remember who you really are. Take your time to return to the heart of compassion and freedom in the midst of body, feelings, thoughts, relations, all that come back to the place of knowing, to the space of awareness, to the great heart of compassion. There's a need for it in the world. You know, somebody has to do this because a lot of people have forgotten. And when one person does it, when one Nelson Mandela or Aung San Suu Kyi or whoever you admire does it, it can affect nations, millions of people. Oh yeah, dignity is possible. Graciousness is our birthright. Compassion, like that story of the Vietnam vet who went back. Oh, our Father's spirit has been reborn in you. And that spirit can be born in you as well. So as we awaken, we allow this well-being and freedom to manifest in us profound joy. And it will happen because it is who you are. Let's sit for a minute. Oh, you want the answer to that, to the koan. What would I have said? Instead of when he said, you know, no more fear ever, right? And I thought, oh yeah, fear, I'll get afraid again, you know, which was humble, but also, um, I just would have looked at him and I said, yeah, fear, so what? (laughs) You know, I mean, I, I believed him and I made fear a problem. But if I said, oh, fear comes and goes, like everything else, the breath comes and goes, and joy and sorrow come and go, fear comes and goes too, so what? What's the problem? And then he would have laughed. And then he would have tried something else because he was a trickster, <laughs> you know. All right, so let's just sit for one minute. And in this sitting, come back just to be the mystery of this incarnation. You are witness. to the beauty and the sorrows, what it means to live on this planet Earth. And you are the Buddha with a great heart of compassion and an absolutely free spirit, the space of awareness itself. Trust it. Rest in it. It is your home.
Let's end the evening with a very simple one-syllable chant before we go out into the summer night. Um, In Sanskrit, there's a seed syllable or mantra that's said to be the first sound in life and the last sound. Um, But most importantly, it's the sound of, it's considered the sound of perfect wisdom because it's the seed syllable that represents letting go or opening. It's the seed syllable, ah. Um, So what I'd like us to do is to sing ah for a bit. And as you do, feel what you want to let go of so that as you go out into the summer evening, the mind is clear and spacious and the heart open. Ah, keep it going. Ah, ah, add harmony. Ah, 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 ah. Rest in awareness, your own true nature, the witness to all things. May your mind be open like the sky and your heart compassionate like the Buddha or the Bodhisattva to hold and touch all things. Have a good week ahead. Thank you. And again, if you're interested in helping Cliff with research, he'll be at the back table there. Thank you for your